you got a Bible, grab it, open it, turn it on, um, however you follow along, whether it's on screen, your outline. Um, we're going to Luke chapter 15. Uh, that's where we're going to be at today. We're in week number eight um, of a series called Overcomers. And um, normally we don't take series this long. Um, next week we'll, we're going to finish this series, though. Um, then we'll go into one. Um, and I think um, the way that it works out, I don't know if we're going to split it in half. I don't know if it's going to be like three weeks and then something different. Um, but this should be what takes us, the next one should be, if it all plans out the way that it does, which never seems to happen around here, um, that should take us into the Christmas series, which is absolutely flipping crazy that it's Christmas time already. So anyway, um, overcomers. Let me set today up like this. Um, it was in... Uh, I don't know, 2007 maybe, um, somebody handed me a DVD of a TV series uh, called Psych. I, I don't know if you've, if you've ever seen that before or not, um, but back then the term binge watch didn't exist, like it hadn't really been invented yet or whatever, um, but I discovered binge watching through this show. How many of you ever seen Psych? And anybody? It's like, it's my all-time favorite. It is like the funniest ever. I watch it like six or seven times a year, like all seven seasons. Like I just, I just absolutely love it. Um, but I remember getting that show and putting it in like the first time and thinking, oh my gosh, this is so good. This is so funny. I just like, I love it. So I had to watch the next episode. And before I knew it, Two or three days in, you've been there, right? It's like two o'clock in the morning, and you're like, I oh, know I got to get up at six o'clock, but it's so good. I got to find out what Sean and the Red Phantom are doing, or whatever. And so you're trying to figure all that out. Now, we asked this question this week on social media. Um, it was pretty fascinating, uh, the answers that we got. We asked, How many of you have ever binge watched a show and what's your favorite show? Some of you participated. Um, the leading the leading answer was The Office. How many of you have seen The Office? Like you binge The Office. I have actually never seen an episode, a full episode of The Office. I don't know why. I guess I'm just weird or whatever. Um, but there were all kinds of answers. There was Designated Survivor, um, Criminal Minds, Friday Night Lights, which is cool, um, Grey's Anatomy. Uh, somebody said Barney Miller. I don't know who that was. Uh, somebody old, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> There's Yellowstone. Yellowstone, like the greatest show on TV. I'm not going to ask all the sinners in here who's watching Yellowstone right now, but it does start November 7th again for the next season. If you haven't watched it, catch up. Um, but here, here's what's funny. <laughs> Some people put stuff out there, but I got all kinds of text messages of people who were said, okay, here's the deal, Ryan. My favorite show is blank, but I'm not putting that out there for people to know. Um, it was like Game of Thrones and Breaking Bad and The Sopranos and Sons of Anarchy and Handmaid's Tale and what and I've seen all those by the way anyway so don't be ashamed your pastor watches that stuff too but but anyway here's where I'm going with this a lot of us have probably binged something we we've probably gone through that and, and while we're binging it we can't we can't wait for the next episode and our our minds are just fixated on what happens next and we're sitting at work and we start thinking about it and we just we 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 turn around make sure nobody's watching and and we we catch the episode we turn on Hulu or Netflix or whatever just so we can see a little bit of it or we hurry up and we go home or we do whatever because we can't think of anything else like we're just focused on that that's a small taste of addiction 
Now, in this series, Overcomers, we've talked about a bunch of different subjects, a lot of different things, and we've talked about how, how we want to be real, and we want to talk about real-life situations because the Bible addresses real-life situations. And normally, we don't do a part one and a part two of a message. But today and next week, we're going to talk about addiction, and we're going to talk about overcoming addiction. And I want you to know that I'm coming at it from two different perspectives. We're going to approach it from a biblical, theological perspective, um, but I'm also going to approach it from a very, very personal perspective. Um, I can address it both ways because um, I know what the Bible says about it, and I've actually been an addict in some way, shape, form, or fashion um, from a very early age of my life. Let me briefly walk you through um, some of it. Um, my, first, uh, my first addiction was to pornography, and it started when I was very young. Um, it dominated my life. When, when I was a kid, it wasn't on your phone. Um, you had to actually go find magazines and VHS tapes. Some of you don't even know what VHS tapes are, but VHS tapes, or you had to find like the shady dude outside of the gas station to go in and buy stuff for you, and it was, it was crazy. Um, my dad, long story short, um, I found some of his, and I was instantly hooked. Now, I know why I was addicted to pornography. Um, a lot of people question why certain people do certain things. I don't understand why they do that. I don't understand why they can't just get better. I don't understand. I, I, I knew exactly why I did it. I felt very rejected. Um, I wasn't included in things that my friends were included in. They told me I couldn't do things with them because I was poor or I was ugly. I can make, make a list of 100 things right here. Um, but the main one was I felt very rejected. And pornography was just my way that I felt accepted. That's not an excuse. It's just it's the, it's the fact. Like, that's, that's why I did it. Um, several years later, I'm sort of able to step out of that um, addiction for a time. And uh, well, let, let me say this. What, what's crazy um, is this. If you step out of an addiction, but you don't deal with the root, you just deal with the fruit, you just step right into another addiction. And so I went from a pornography addiction um, to an alcohol addiction. Um, I remember the first time I ever really drank like I had messed around with it and stuff and um, taken sips here and there and played around with it and stuff but the first time I ever really drank I was in eighth grade I was an altar boy um, <laughs> I had gotten in some trouble as an altar boy uh, which is another message for another time um, but I had got demoted to robe washer and I had gone down <laughs> it's funny if you know the whole story um, I had I had I was taking the the robes down into the basement um, to wash them, and some of the high school boys were downstairs drinking communion wine. In that moment, I felt like, I, and, and, and let me say this about our feelings. Our feelings are never um, a good reason to do or not do something, right? We've talked about this before. How I feel is that because, because in the moment, we can feel one way, and we look back on it, and we think about how big of a dumb butt we were, right? I mean, so I feel it's not a good reason to do or not do something, but I felt in that moment I only had one or two choices available to me, go and tell on them or sit down and drink with them. Alcohol gave me a sense of acceptance that I had never known in my entire life. And so before I knew it, um, I was stealing communion wine from the church and going out into the woods and drinking um, with my friends. Um, now, if I'm honest, um, I had an alcohol addiction because there was a lot of pain in my life. There were a lot of things going on. 
Um, my parents moved us um, to a new school, to a different state. And, um, and when I got there, I kind of fell into the same type of social status as far as drinking um, that I had al always known. And alcohol was the only way I felt that I could continue to relate with or be accepted by other people. But deep down, um, I had a lot of pain. And, and let me just say this right here, because this is, this is what I hear a lot. And so I'm just going to put this out there so that we all have it. One of the most insensitive things that you can say to somebody who's struggling with an addiction is, well, all you're doing is just finding temporary relief. When you're in pain, temporary relief is, is better than no relief at all, right? Like seriously, when you're in pain, temporary relief is better than no pain at all. If you don't understand that, you've never been in pain. And so I was, I was into alcohol, and then in college, um, I started doing drugs, and I started doing all of them. Um, and I was highly addicted to alcohol and cocaine um, into my mid-20s. Um, now, the cool part of the story is that Jesus came into my life and set me free from the drug and alcohol addiction and the pornography addiction that was holding me in bondage for years. But then food took their place um, because, once again, I didn't, I didn't deal with the root. There were things going on in my life I didn't know how to deal with. I didn't know how to process. And so I began to overeat. I would just eat because I was bored, or I would eat because I was sad, or I would eat because I was happy, or I would eat because I was mad. I just eat. Like that was my addiction. Now I know today there, there, are, there are different forms of food addiction, whether it's anorexia or bulimia or just overeating or whatever. And so you're here and you're wrestling with that, that sort of addiction. I want you to know I get that too. I, under, I understand that. But food was my thing. Now, I was clean and sober um, from drugs and alcohol for about 12 years. And then I developed a dependency on pain pills. And I began to abuse them daily. Like, it was bad. Like, it, it was bad. And I was doing things that I shouldn't have been doing. I was, I was working um, in a church at a time. And, um, and, and my life fell completely apart. And I came clean about that. And with the help of Jesus, again, and the support of others, um, I was able to, to completely overcome that. It was then that I began to really understand how important it is to deal with the root of what's going on. Now, that's just a super quick rundown of some of my addictions. But um, the reason I think it's important for you to know is because what I'm talking about today, again, from a theological perspective, but I've also been down this road. Um, and, and what I'm trying to do in the next couple of weeks is kind of marry these two ideas together because this isn't stuff that I've read in a book. These are real-life experiences. So, again, this week's part one, next week's part two, how to break the chains of addiction, how to overcome that. All right, so if you want to do it, if you want to get into part one, I think there's four things that we really need to, to wrap our minds around, four steps that have to be taken in order for us to begin this process we're going to look at this from Luke chapter 15. We're going to draw this out of the story of the prodigal son. Um, listen, I've been reading this story for years and years and years. And recently, like over the past, I don't know, year, a little more than a year, I, I've, been, um, I've been working, a lot of you know this, I've been working at St. Greg's. It's a recovery center. Um, I preach there. Um, I teach class there sometimes. And a while back, I did a lesson on this parable, and the parallels to addiction were crazy to me. So here, here we go. First thing we got to do, first thing that has to happen, self-realization. We're going to break the chains of addiction. We're going to overcome addiction in our lives. The first thing we have to do is we have to have this thing called self-realization. Now, I love, 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 love 
white monster energy drinks. Absol- I actually love all monster energy drinks, but the white one is my favorite. I used to drink these things way too much. Um, you could say I was addicted to them. Like I was drinking five or six of these a day. Like that, that's addicted, yes or no? That's a problem, yes or no? Some of you are like, I used to preach really well when I had three of these before first service, and it, but, right? But anyway, um, a while back, um, I, I cracked open Monster, and I drank it, and about 15 minutes later, I felt like I was having a heart attack. And it was only after the first one, all right? So, but I had like all this pain right here, and I'm like, I don't even know what's going on. So I took some Prilosec and some Tums and, 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 all, and, and it was fine, and um, I kind of got over that. Um, and the next day, I drank a Monster, and the same thing happened. Next day, drank a Monster, and the same thing happened. And I thought, you know what? I should probably talk to somebody about this. I went to the doctor, and the doctor said, what are you doing? I was like, well, every time I drink a monster, and she said, listen, you probably need to stop drinking the monster. I'm like, no, 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 listen to the whole story. Like, I drink a monster, but it happens, but then I could take this Prilosec, and I take these Tums, and it goes away. She's like, you have acid reflux. You need to stop drinking all of the monster now. I walked out to my truck. I said, the doctor doesn't know what she's talking about. I went to the gas station. Guess what I did? White monster, got a white monster. Guess what happened? Pain. I kept doing it for like weeks. <laughs> a few months ago, uh, actually it was probably like two months ago, um, I couldn't do it anymore. Like I, just, like I just couldn't handle it. And I thought, you know what? Everybody's probably right. I probably shouldn't drink monsters anymore. He, here's the point. This is something... Not at, I've had that thing in my hand for like three minutes, and now I want to drink it. I haven't had one in like two months. That's how temptation works and addiction, right? Um, here's the point of this thing. It's something I had to realize on my own. Nobody wrote me a letter. Nobody said, thou shalt not drink monsters. It says right here in the Bible, Ryan, n- n- none of that. Nobody, nobody sent me a song to listen to. Nobody sent me a sermon series. It was something I had to arrive at myself. It was a conclusion I had to come to on my own. Now, the reason I say that is because if somebody is struggling with an addiction, no amount of lectures, no amount of Bible verses, no amount of verbal abuse is going to pull them out of that addiction. Listen, if there is somebody that you love, that you care about, that is wrestling with addiction, the very best thing that you can do for them is pray that they will have this thing called self-realization. I'll show it to you in the Bible. Jesus is telling a story. He's telling a series of stories about things that are lost. And he starts telling the story about a son that got lost. We call it the prodigal son. It says this, Luke 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. Now, if you're on the outside looking into this store, you can see that this is going to go bad, can't you? But like, if you have somebody that you care about that's wrestling with an addiction, you can see if they continue to go down that road, like, like we can see it, right? They, they, they may not necessarily see it, but, but we can see 
if they continue down that road, it's going to go bad. It's inevitable. Like the wall is coming, and they're driving like 120 miles right at it. They're going to hit it. And you feel helpless. You feel like you're out of control. There's absolutely nothing you could do. I'm sure the father felt the exact same way in this story. Like he knew if I give him the inheritance, he's going to go away, and he's, and he's just going to waste it all. Like it's going to go bad. I'm sure everybody in the story knew that. I'm sure if people were hearing Jesus tell this story, they knew that. It's going to go bad. He goes on to say this. After he had spent everything, because don't miss this, not getting out of an addictive behavior is going to cost you. Not getting out of an addictive behavior is going to cost you, I promise you. I, I, don't, I don't say that to you as someone who doesn't know. I know the price has to be paid. Every time something addictive has happened in my life, it has cost me every single time. And if you're here and you're wrestling with an addiction, it does cost. It costs. It costs. It costs. It costs this dude everything. He spent everything. And then look what happens. There was a severe famine in the whole country. And now you would think at that point, well, he just get his act together, right? He just straighten up. No, 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 no. Look at this. In the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. In other words, he still... Going down this path, even though he lost everything. And this is where people say, well, you know, addicts, once they lose everything, then they'll quit. But you know what? If somebody is an addict and the real problem, the real issue, the trauma, the pain isn't dealt with, they will continue down the same road over and over and over again. So how do they change? Well, this next verse is key. This verse, when I saw this and like really wrapped my mind around it, it just, just totally makes sense. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, that's huge. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Don't miss this. When he, when he, when he, when who? When he came to his senses, not when his wife nagged him to death. Not when his friends quoted all kinds of Bible verses to him. Not when his church beat him up with the Bible. Not when they yelled at him and screamed at him and shamed him and condemned him. This was something where he had to look at his situation and say, oh, you know what? I don't want to live this way anymore. I don't want to live this way anymore. That is when an addict can begin to get better. See, other people can't decide when you're going to step into healing. Other people can't decide when I can step into healing. Other people can't decide when you're going to step into healing. I wish I could decide that for other people. You wish you could decide that for other people. But you can't decide that for somebody because at the end of the day, the reason an addict does what he or she does, listen to me, it's because there's, there's, there's serious pain or hurt in their lives. It's serious. Like, l- let me ask you this question. Do you think I enjoyed waking up with a hangover every morning, yes or no? No, it's something, that's not something people look forward to. They don't look forward to making themselves sick. They don't look forward to spending all of their money. They don't look forward to those things. But it's not till a person comes to their senses and says, I don't want to live this way anymore, that they can step into a process of healing and recovery. We don't get to decide when somebody else gets better. 
Listen to me. If, if you're in this room and you're wrestling with an addiction, I get it. I understand why you do it. But my prayer, my hope for you is that you would eventually get to the place, hopefully today, where you could say, I don't want to live this way anymore. I don't. I'm tired of it. I'm sick of being in the same cycle. I don't want to live this way anymore. That's the first step into healing. The second step is confession. Confession. My dad taught me about three really important lessons in life. Um, one of them uh, was about confession. Um, <laughs> I, watched him, I watched him get pulled over um, for speeding one time. And uh, the police officer walked up to the window and he said, can I get your driver's license and registration? And my dad gave him driver's license registration. And he, he looked at it, he said, Mr. Gallagher, so you know why I pulled you over? And my dad said, yeah, because I was speeding. And the officer was like, excuse me? And he said, I was, I was speeding. He said, do you know how fast you were going? He said, yeah, I was going about 90. Um, confused, the police officer walked back to his car, came back, handed my dad his license and registration. And he told my dad, he said, Mr. Gallagher, I've been a police officer for, I don't know, X number of years. Um, Nobody has ever told me, A, that they were speeding, and B, how fast they were going. And so I'm not going to write you a ticket. Here's your license and registration. Have a nice night. I, I will never, ever, ever forget that. My dad looked at me, and he said, son, it's important that you always tell the truth. So fast forward about 10 years uh, to the first time I got pulled over. I thought, do what my dad does. <laughs> the police officers came up to the window. Mr. Gallagher, so you know why I pulled you over? Yes, sir, I was speeding. He said, yes, you were. Do you know how fast you were going? I said, yes, sir, I was going about 55. He said, yeah, you were going 55, but this is a 35. I'm writing you a ticket. So it didn't work for me. This is where my illustration breaks apart. But um, <laughs> my dad taught me, like, the whole confession thing. Here's the thing about anybody that's wrestling with an addiction. Confession, and, and, and listen, right here I'm talking about personal confession. Listen, if you love an addict, you cannot confess for them. This has got to be something deeply personal that they come and they express themselves. Just like the young man in this story. Watch this. He came to his senses, and then the Bible says this, verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned. That's huge. That's key right there. All right, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He said, Father, I have sinned. Anybody want to guess what that is? Confession. Confession. And it's being real. It's being transparent. It's being honest. It's being super, 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 super clear as we talked about in this series about what's going on in your life. He didn't say, oh, oh, daddy, I've got some issues. I've got some things working on. I can quit any time. Those are things addicts say, right? Those are things that we say. I can quit any time. It's not a big deal or whatever. But until we say, I don't want to live this way anymore, and we confess out loud, I have a problem, and I want to get well, and this is what I'm having a promise with. Until we do that, healing can't begin. Now, l- let me give you three reasons why addicts, why we don't typically want to confess. First one is blame. Blame. It- it's amazing to me the amount of people who play the blame game. I-, I think we live in a society now that we just, we don't, it's sad, but we're surrounded by people who don't take responsibility for anything. We just blame our 
circumstances. We blame our environment. We blame our politics. We blame our government. We blame our teachers. We blame our coaches. We blame our students. We blame our whatever. But here's the deal. This is what I know about most addicts. This, this, I, I don't know this about all addicts. I don't know all addicts. But I'll say most addicts that I've had personal contact with that's an addict, that there is hurt or pain somewhere in their life. Somebody hurt them. Circumstances fell apart around them. They lost a loved one. They, they lost a mom, a dad, a family member. They lost a, a friend. There's tragedy. There's trauma. I mean, it is legit. And, and, and I, I understand what it's like to feel that hurt and pain. But as long as we play the blame game, we will never get well. As long as we play the blame game, we will never get well. Because to blame is to be lame. That means we're going we're gonna to lay around and blame other people for the rest of our life. And at the end of the day, listen to me. I don't want to get even. I want to get better. How about you? I don't want to get, I don't want to get even. I want to get better. And if I want to get better, then i got to stop blaming people. Because as long as we blame people, we can be a victim. And victims never walk in victory. Ever. Victims never walk in victory. So the first one is blame. The second reason is fear. Fear. Fear of being mostly out of control. Let me explain it like this. All of us like to be comfortable, right? We like drift towards comfort. I thought about this the other morning. Um, my alarm went off at 5.20 in the morning. Um, listen. 520 should only come one time a day. It should only be at the nighttime, right? I don't, I don't know who, but anyway, I get up, get my kid up for weights, and it's crazy. And so I hit snooze, and because uh, I, I don't want to get out of bed. I love my bed because in my bed, I am so comfortable. I've got great sheets, great big fluffy comforter. I've got to like pull it up to here because my air conditioner is like 62 and I got like the fan blowing down on me. It's the best feeling in the world, right? I love comfort. We love comfort. We drift towards things that typically make us comfortable. We're comfortable in what we can control. And the reason people are addicted, because believe it or not, it gives us a sense of control. Everything in our life is out of control. But when we use or we do what we do for that small section of time, we feel like we actually have control. Even though in reality, we don't. And we're really scared of giving up what control looks like. So we'll, keep fear, or we'll let fear keep us in a place of addiction. The third reason is shame. Shame. I, I don't know if you've ever been publicly shamed um, or have ever been shamed online or, or shamed by your family or friends or whatever. Um, nobody loves that. Nobody loves to be shamed. I, I can remember vividly um, some shameful moments in my life. Um, one time, Chloe uh, it's my daughter. We had some, <laughs> we had some missionaries um, coming to visit. And this was years ago before I was in Carroll. Um, it was like a missions conference or something. I can't remember exactly what we were doing. I don't know if it was just training or whatever. But um, Chloe was like three or four years old. 
And I, I told her, I was like, hey, baby, I'm not going to be able to come home. I'm not going to be home at night to tuck you in and, and read to you because um, we've, got, we've got these dignitaries coming in from around the world. And, and for days I was telling her about these dignitaries. She didn't really understand missionaries. And I'm like, these dignitaries are really important people. Um, and so I just kept talking about these dignitaries that were coming to, to visit us. Um, well, after about the second or third day, um, Mary thought that we were going to be on break, um, and, and so she brought the kids by um, to visit because I, I hadn't seen them. And um, somebody knew the kids were out, and we're sitting in this big conference room, and um, somebody suggested that they bring the kids in so that the kids could meet everybody. And all these people are like, oh, yes, we'd love to see the kids and all of that. And so Chloe walks into the room. We're all sitting around this huge table. My beautiful, brown-eyed wonderful little princess looks at everybody and says, Daddy, are these the dingleberries you've been talking about? In that moment, I wanted to die. I wanted to just crawl underneath the table and disappear, but it was a glass table, so I wasn't hiding anywhere. I just like, Jesus, come back now. Please, just like take me. You know what it feels like to be completely shamed in public. The reason a lot of people don't want to come forward with an addiction is because they get shamed, right? Like, I, I, don't, I don't know I don't know if this one's going to get on the internet or not, so I don't know where you're watching from online. Um, I don't really know what it's like in Creston, uh, but this is Carroll, Iowa. What you did when you're 18, people still talk about when you're 47. Oh, oh, you're the girl that got pregnant in high school? Yes, but it was 1992. I mean, can we just, like, not talk about that anymore? Can we drop it? I've grown up. I've grown out of that. I'm not the same person that I used to be. And listen, one of the things that will not happen is you will never, ever, ever, ever shame somebody out of an addiction. One of the reasons that addicts, listen, what I've seen over the years, the last place an addict wants to ask for help is the church. Because at the church, if you ask for help, we're going to pray for you. But if you're not better by next week, we'll kick your butt out the door. And that's not the way Jesus said it's supposed to be. That's not the way that I see it in the scriptures. We're not supposed to cast you out. We're supposed to walk with you while you're wrestling through an issue. If you can't come to the church when you're messy, you shouldn't be able to show up at church at all. So I'm a little passionate about that because it ticks me off. I have, I have a friend who had some people who, who decided they were going to do an intervention for him. He worked at a church. So they gathered, they gathered him around. He had a drinking problem. They slid a contract in front of him. Said, sign this contract saying you'll never drink again. What the heck is that? Like how effective is that, seriously? How many of you that have ever wrestled with an addiction have ever said oh my gosh why did I think of that I'll put my name on a contract I'll never struggle with drinking again I'll never struggle with using I'll never struggle with making myself sick that does not work church should be a place where shame is put out the door and people should be able to walk in here and say hey this is who I am this is what I'm wrestling with God help me and may we help one another number three understand the process Understand it's a process. Healing from addiction is a process. You've got to understand. If you love somebody who's an addict, it could take 10 weeks, it could take 10 months, it could take 10 years, or they could fight like hell for the rest of their life, and you have got to be okay with that. You do. 
You've got to be okay with it. Look at this. Look what Jesus said, verse 20. So he got up. So so this guy comes to his senses, understands my father's servant's got it better than I've got it. So he got up and he went to his father. And the reason this is so powerful to me is because we know he's in a faraway country. And he doesn't automatically wind up the house. Daddy, Daddy doesn't swoop in with a helicopter and bring him back. He had to walk. He had to do this on his own. And maybe on this walk, he tripped and fell. And maybe while he was walking, he twisted his ankle. We, we don't know. We just know that there was a process of him getting up and walking all the way back to the father's house. Let, 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 me, let me set this up like this. Let me explain it like this. Let's say, for example, you're here today. After you leave here today, you, ne- you need to leave and you need to get some shopping done. And so you go to Walmart. And you're walking around Walmart and there's some water on the floor and you don't see it. And so you step into the water, and both of your legs fly out from underneath you. You fall down, you break your leg. Anyone here ever broken their leg before? Anybody? I haven't. I understand it sucks, all right? But, but let's say you break your leg, and there's no doubt your leg is broken. It's not like, oh, I'm, I'm a little sore. Like, I'm talking com- compound fracture, like bones sticking out, blood squirting all over the cereal boxes, all right? So in that moment, sorry, we've got to try to be visual or you don't pay attention. Um, in that moment, if you're with somebody, let me tell you what you do not say to them. Uh, hey, uh, we just left the church, and I bet somebody out there will pray for me. And so what I need for you to do is I need you to take me back to Central Church. Just drag me in, put me in the foyer, and, and somebody there will pray for me, and I'll be all better, and we can go shoot some hoops. We'll be good. No! Nobody's going to say that because if you're on the ground with your leg broken, bone sticking out, blood shooting on the cereal, and somebody recommends that, you're going to be like, um, you obviously didn't listen to the message today because you're high on meth right now. Like, there's no way. If you break your leg, where do you want to go? The hospital, right? There's always somebody saying, don't take me to the ER. That's because you never broke your freaking leg, right? If you break your leg, you're yelling, get me to the hospital. Take me to the hospital now. So let's say you're back there. They're setting your leg, right? After they set set your leg, what are they going to tell you to do? Are they going to tell you you can leave and you can play basketball, or are they going to put a cast on you and tell you stay off of it? They're going to put a cast on you, right, tell you to stay off. They're going to they're say stay off for three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, ten weeks, how, however long it's going to take you to heal. Why? Because healing is a what? It's a process. And we know that physically. We understand that physically. We're okay with that physically. If somebody breaks an arm or a finger or a leg or whatever, we, we know it's a process physically. Why aren't we okay with that? And Why don't we understand that when it's emotionally or spiritually? Why? Seriously, why? Listen, if you're somebody who's wrestling with an addiction and you have felt shame, you have felt cast out, you have felt put aside, here's what I know. And here's what I want you to know. This church will not kick you out. This church will walk with you. This church will stand with you through the process. I don't care how long it takes. If it takes 10 weeks, we'll walk with you. If it takes 10 months, we'll stand with you. If it takes 10 years, we'll be there right alongside of you. Because listen, 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 don't miss this. The process is different for everyone. And we will be a church, and we will be people in this church who step alongside of you and help you no matter what hell you're going through. And if you don't like that, and you don't want to be a part of that, listen to me. 
This isn't your church. It, it's, it's just not. This leads to the last part. Number four, embrace community. Embrace community. Because listen, you can't heal alone. You can't. In fact, the more alone that an addict gets, the more likely we are to use. You cannot heal alone. But, but when you get with a community that will stand with you, baby, that's a game changer. I, I was talking to a guy two months ago. Um, he was back at the recovery center for being gone for a few years. Um, he was talking about the fear of, of um, having to go back to his first group session because um, in group session, everybody has to talk. And it came time for him to talk. And, and this guy um, had, been, had been clean and sober. He had been dry for three years. And he got in his group, and he said, hey, guys, I messed up. Um, I got out of here. I graduated three years ago. I was doing really well. I went to my brother's house. Um, things didn't go well. Got in an argument. Got in a fight. And so I drank, and I drank, and I drank, and I drank, and I drank a lot. And he was riddled with shame and guilt. Um, and, and, and the people in that circle went, man, you made it three years? I haven't made it three weeks. Another guy said, I haven't even made it a week yet. They, they went around the room, and they didn't kick him out. They pulled him in. When somebody pulls you in rather than kicks you out, the potential for healing is unlimited. And that is what the church should be, yes or no? Yes. See this in the story, verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And watch this. I love this. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a finger, or put a finger on his ringer. That's my wedding. I've done that so many times. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This blows my mind. The first thing the father did was got him in the house. They got him around a group of people who did not condemn him. They celebrated him. He got him around a bunch of people who did not say, well, I don't know. Let's just wait and see, seen this before. By, by the way, those words to an addict do nothing but drive them further into their addiction because it proves you never believed in them in the first place. I've had people tell me, well, Ryan, I know an addict, and they told me they were going to quit, but they're just lying. They're being completely dishonest. Of course they're dishonest because a lot of people tell addicts quit or else, Right? And they don't know what the what or the what the or else is. And so they'll keep using and they'll hide it from you because you've already threatened them. You've already proven you're not a safe place. Got him into the house and celebrated. That's what we're supposed to have. When an addict steps forward and says, I don't want to live this way anymore. I have an addiction. They're clear about the addiction. They say, I don't want to do this anymore. And they, and they want to get serious help. We engage them in the process and we celebrate them as they go along. And you know what celebration looks like? If they take two steps forward and one step back, that's still one step forward. That's still one step that we will celebrate. They go three days without using and fall off the wagon. You know what we do? We don't 
throw Bible verses at them and condemn them and shame them. We pick them up and we say, hey, you made it for three days. Let's go for three more. Can we go for four? Can we go for five? And when they fall down, we help pick them back up because that's what friends are supposed to do for one another. Not, oh, you fell down. You're obviously not right with Jesus. You're a pagan. You don't belong in this place. Just leave and never come back. Because if we're really honest, do any of us belong? I love what the scripture says in Proverbs 17, verse 9. It says, love prospers. Love prospers when a fault is forgiven. But dwelling on it separates close friends. The reason a lot of addicts or former addicts, the reason why we really don't have great friends is because too many people want to focus on who we used to be rather than who Jesus is making us into. If you're here, listen to me, if you're here and, you, and you've never wrestled with an addiction, I don't really expect you to understand most of this message. But if you're here and you have wrestled with an addiction or if you are wrestling with an addiction, I want you to know this central church, this place right here, this is a safe place to ask for help. Because I, I started off telling you um, about my battles with it. And you need to know, you are not alone. You're not. I'll, I'll end this with a story that I've shared before, um, but it's still one of the things I'll never forget. I was um, <laughs> I was walking into Borden Arrows for lunch one day. Imagine that, right? And um, a lady stopped me on the sidewalk. I, I had no idea who she was. Um, she's like, hey, you're Pastor Ryan, aren't you? And I said, maybe. Um, I, I was trying to be funny. Um, but she looked at me, and she had tears in her eyes, and she said, will you pray for me? And I was like, oh, absolutely. Like, how can I pray for you? What do you want me to pray about? And she said, I'm an addict. I've been clean for 23 months. I said, that's awesome. Because I I was, like, legit excited for her. She started crying harder. And she said, I'm so thankful you could celebrate that. But all my family members, all my friends say that I'm an addict. And I'm fighting thoughts of if that's who they say I am, why don't I just go back to my old ways? And I looked at her and I said, listen, I know something about this. And one of the things that I've discovered over the years is you are not who they say you are. You are who Jesus says you are. And he says you are loved. He says you are forgiven. He says you are chosen. He says you are valued. He says you are highly favored. He says you are special in his sight. Don't, don't, let, don't let them define you. You let him define you. And she said, they tell me. I'm a junky piece of trash. And I said, you've been lied to. You're not a piece of trash. You're a child of God. You matter to him. He died for you. You you are forgiven. Your sins are paid for. And those, those chains of addiction in your life can be broken. You can overcome that. And you can walk in the freedom that he's promised you. I said that to her. And what I said to her, I'll say to every single one of you. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're wrestling with. But I want you to know, I get it. I understand what you're wrestling with. And this church will walk with you. You don't have to live that way anymore. But it has to be your decision. Your decision. I I can't make that decision for you. You have to make it. I don't care if you've been an addict for Two years, five years, 20 years, 30 years. You can be free today. But it starts with self-realization and confession, understanding it's a process, and you need to embrace community. If you're struggling, once again, listen to me. I get it. I do. 
But if Jesus can set me free from years of wrestling with it, he could do the same for you. And, and this is a safe place for you to take the first step and say, I don't want to live this way anymore. I have a problem and I need some help. Claudia and Dustin are going to come up here and they're going to sing a song. And, and listen, this is not the traditional closing song. This is not like a traditional invitation song. Um, but I heard this. I heard this song on Wednesday during someone's graduation ceremony at St. Greg's. And in that moment, it just spoke to my heart. And while, while I was playing, I, I just texted Claudia in the middle of it and said, hey, we're doing this this, this, this weekend. Learn it quick. <laughs> um, and listen to me. If you're here today and you're wrestling with an addiction, I, I, want, I want you to let us know. There will be people up here that, that, will, that will pray with you or for you. Um, you can go to the welcome desk. If you don't feel like coming up here, go to the welcome desk. Um, let, let us know. Somebody will call you tomorrow and talk to you about this. Scan that little QR code or get the number on there or whatever is on that thing and um, or just, just talk to somebody. Um, if you have somebody close to you that's an addict and you don't know how to handle it and you need us to pray with you, um, that they will come to their senses and lay, lay their addiction down at the foot of the cross. We're here for that too. Um, for those of you, though, that are holding on to the addiction, let, let me ask this, I'll ask this last question and I'll finish up, I promise. For those of you who are holding on to that addiction, how much longer are you going to hang on to it? Seriously. How much longer? Because it's not going to serve you well. It's going to cost you. Trust me. Trust me. It's going to cost you, and it's not worth it. The, the struggle is real. I get it. But you can be set free. You can overcome. As, as she sings, as they sing this song, I want us to listen to the words. And, and if you need help, do not be ashamed to ask today. This is why we're here, because we love you, and we understand that through Jesus we can overcome anything. He woke up this morning to an angel in his bed. There was a devil in the bottle that he was holding in his hands. With his head still full of whiskey And his eyes now full of tears He dusted off a Bible That he hadn't read in years And he said, I am tired, I am told And I can't take it You see this bottle, it's been my only friend But here I am, my heart to you I give Father, can you take away these tears? She struggles with addiction she struggles to fit in She takes too much medication To cover up her tears One pill to make her happy Too many make her sad Then she notices the Bible In a hotel by her head And she says, I am weary, I am old 
I can't take it anymore. You see this bottle, it's been my only friend. But here I am, my heart to you I give. Father, can you wash away these sins? Then the sun came out and the skies turned blue. And the pain they knew was gone. And as the old life died, a new life it was born. Was a love they never knew until they followed. 